This is Grounded, a podcast from Michigan Sugar Company. Grounded is intended to explore our history, the tradition that's made us great, and the ideas to drive us into the future. Grounded is hosted by Jim Ruhlman, Michigan Sugar Company Executive Vice President. And now, here's Jim Ruhlman. Well, welcome. This is our first edition of Grounded. This afternoon, we have with us Mr. Ernest Flagenheimer. Ernest served as president of Michigan Sugar Company between the years of 1963 and 1993. Before we get into your career at Michigan Sugar, Ernest, maybe we'll start before that. I'll ask, what was your first job in the sugar industry and and where'd you start? Actually, I got exposed to the uh, sugar industry sort of through the back door, if you will. My father had a small uh, family own company in New York, and uh, it was more of an investment company than anything else. And in, in about 1950, he was contacted by some uh, people that he knew in Germany in the sugar business who uh, told him that they had an excess production of beet pulp in that particular year, which needed to be exported, and they... Uh, understood that there was a possible market in the United States and asked my father if he had any contacts or knew anyone that might be interested in purchasing pulp and whether he'd be interested in looking into it. And he said, sure, uh, he'd be happy to. And I was with him at the time, and uh, we really didn't know much about beet pulp business or the feed business, but uh, we found out fairly quickly that there was indeed a pretty good market in the uh, eastern United States, New England specifically. Mm. Seemed to be a lot of horse feeding in that part of the country. And uh, we contacted a number of the larger jobbers and brokers in the feed business and said they would be able to find a market. So uh, my father told the folks in, in Europe that, yes, uh, we thought we could handle it, and it was a fairly uh, low-risk proposition because they realized there was excess production, and they basically asked about how much can you pay for it so that this thing works out, and that's about the way it started. So I got exposed to the uh, import business of making arrangements for shipping and storing and transportation and selling it to uh, jobbers and that's how I got started. Interesting. We were, I think, also contacted the following year by a sugar company in Yugoslavia that had the same issue. Apparently, there was excess of feed in Europe, and they uh, sent us 10,000 tons of pulp, if I remember correctly. And it blossomed in a nice little business, and we uh, had heard that Spain was exporting a lot of beet pulp at the time also, but didn't have any contacts. And my father, being uh, the entrepreneur, he said, uh, how would you like to go over to Spain and see if you can interest anyone to sell us some beet pulp? And we contacted some uh, sugar brokers, I believe they were, who knew the proper people in Spain. And off I went to Spain, and unfortunately... I wasn't very successful, but I had a very interesting trip in Spain. 
beautiful country. Man. How old were you at the time, Ernest? I was, let's see, I was about 23. Yeah. So that was my start to the sugar exposure to the sugar business as through the back door. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Tell me about from there how you and your father got involved with sugar processing and sugar manufacturing. It sounds like there was a step maybe between there and Michigan Sugar. Right. Well, my my dad was in the sugar business, as you probably know, all his life. And he became aware of a small uh, sugar company in Wisconsin. Name of Menominee Sugar Company. Strange name for Wisconsin company, but... uh, they operated two plants, one in Menominee, Michigan, and one in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, it was owned, I think, mainly by some lumber people that uh, were not in the sugar business, sort of when the lumbering era ended, sugar became the thing of the day, and they got into it, but they really didn't, or not sugar. Okay. People, and they operated two plants, and... We became, or my dad became aware that there really weren't enough beets to operate two plants. So the idea was they actually shipped the beets from Wisconsin past the Green Bay plant up to Menominee, which is 60 miles away. I see. And I just got married in 52 and in 54 moved to Menominee, Michigan from New York City, which was quite a <laughs> culture, culture change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there for just one year, and then we had to close the plant in Menominee. Okay. And I moved. We moved down to Green Bay in '55. And how long were you in Green Bay? I was in Green Bay until '63, till I came to Saginaw. Okay. But unfortunately, the plant in Green Bay had the same problem that many of the plants had. There were not enough. Beets to keep it alive. It was dairy country. Yeah, I see. Small farms, and we had a problem getting enough beets. And by coincidence, just as history, uh, there were a number of smaller plants in those days. There was one in uh, St. Louis, Michigan. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Lakeshore Sugar Company. Mm -hmm. And there was a small plant in Ohio, Buckeye Sugars. And Great Lakes Sugar Company, which became Northern Ohio Sugar Company. And the Lakeshore Sugar Company had the same problem as other plants in Michigan. They couldn't get enough beets either. And I can't tell you exactly the history, but uh, there were some high-value crop growers in Illinois near, strangely enough, near O'Hare Airport. It grew mainly tomatoes, cucumbers, that type of crop, and they had excellent land. And they became interested in growing about 2,000 acres of sugar beets. That was back in the uh, 50s. Okay. And they were getting, at that that time, 20 tons per acre when in Michigan we were getting 10 to 12 tons. And the Lakeshore Sugar Company uh, erected three receiving stations. In Illinois, one in Palatine and one in Chicago Heights, and I can't remember the name of the third one, but it's okay. not far from O'Hare. Mm-hmm. And they contracted those beets, and they were shipped to St. Louis, Michigan. Really, for, really? Wow. For a number of years, and uh, then Lakeshore went out of business. And we became aware of that in Green Bay, 
and they extended our lifespan, I guess is a good way to put it. We purchased the uh, receiving stations. 40,000 tons came up to Green Bay. From, from Chicago from, area? From the Chicago area for probably the last three years that the Green Bay plant operated. It closed down in 61. Okay. So you got your taste of, of sugar beet processing and agriculture right, right. and beet supply in right. Wisconsin. Right. At what point did your father and, and maybe your father and yourself start looking at, at Michigan? I'll tell you exactly. My father lived in New York and he had a small office in New York, and he had quite a few friends in the sugar business, brokerage business, what have you, and he was made aware of uh, the interest of the Pitcairn family, who were the controlling shareholders in Michigan, who were also not sugar people, who were Pittsburgh plate glass family that got involved, I think, during the Depression, ended up owning a block of Michigan shares, the controlling shares, and uh, Lamborn was brokerage companies, and they were one of the brokers of Michigan Sugar that sold sugar for Michigan oh. Sugar. And Mr. Lamborn had lunch one day with my dad and said, are you aware that the Pitcairns are looking to sell their interest in Michigan Sugar? And my father said, no, I hadn't heard about that. And he said, well, if you're interested, I can introduce you because they've been shopping that's how he first became aware of it. Wow. That was in 1960. What did your father see? He heard that it might be, there might be an interested seller. Yeah. What did he see in Michigan that made him want to pursue uh, I, opportunity I think the, there? I think after the experience that we had in Green Bay of the lack of sugar beets, he was impressed by the vast acreage that we had in the thumb. That was just ideal for any kind of agriculture and certainly for cultivation of sugar beets. I think that was the first thing, as I recall, that impressed him. And I think the other thing that intrigued him was that Michigan was the easternmost beet-growing area in the United States and obviously had a large geographic advantage in marketing its sugar because all of the sugar was west of the Mississippi and had to be shipped to the population area. So Michigan had a, I would say, a, at least a dollar a hundred weight advantage over the Western plants. I think that was also intriguing. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah. No. So when he when he looked at manufacturing facilities and looking for someone to lead the company, what kind of discussions took place between you and him at that time? Well, let me backtrack a little bit. Okay. He, he was uh, he was made aware of that. Uh, Michigan Sugar was in bad shape uh, as far as the plants were concerned. They were neglected. They were not up to date by any means. And he was also cautioned that, as far as we knew, every other sugar company in the country had looked at Michigan Sugar Company. It was well known that this block of stock was for sale. And the logical one would have been American Crystal because they're the only other ones that operated and none irrigated country so they were familiar with the challenges and they looked at it great western sugar company looked at it utah idaho sugar company the whole list nobody wanted to touch it they just uh, said it's so far gone that uh, it would take uh, didn't think it was feasible and so my father was the last one standing (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i think he uh, he was kind of warned that uh, better think before you 
do anything because the challenges were pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. As far as what he said to me is basically just that. He said, I see some opportunities, but obviously there's some big challenges. Mm-hmm. He said, you're young, and if you're interested in the sugar business, here's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say you're young, you're, you're yeah. about 35 at the time. Correct. Tell me about the grower base. Tell me about slice capacity. Tell me about, you know, maybe what some of the challenges that you saw at that time. Well, really, uh, Jim, <laughs> that's a question I don't know where to start. Okay. <laughs> the, the challenges were just really, you know, I mean, we son. knew there were challenges, but when you're sitting there and say, okay, it's all yours. Uh, I mean, just for starters, the obvious overwhelming challenge was what to do about Croswell. Now, I don't know how far back in history you went, but when I came in 63, Croswell was slicing the grand total of 600 tons a day. Wow. That's a day. That's 25 tons an hour, to put it <laughs> differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you don't need a degree in economics to figure out that that's just an untenable situation. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? And the one thing that I certainly wanted to avoid, and uh, our management, our board of directors, said, here comes a new group of folks, and the first thing they do is shut down our plant that's operated for sure. 30 or 40 years, and mm-hmm. that's not something we wanted to do. On the other hand, you couldn't operate a 600-ton plant. So Was it, was was it 600 ton because of beet supply, or just that was the capacity of the factory? Both. Okay. Both. Because... Uh, the plant was small, and there weren't any beets, so it didn't really need okay. any more. So we had the decision, okay, well, if we expand the plant, there aren't enough beets to run it. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't run it at 600 tons, so what do you do? And uh, guess what? Illinois beets came up, and they hadn't grown any beets for the last two years. The but same area that supplied beets sa- to you in sa- Wisconsin. Same grower, same yep. place. Yeah. Menominee Sugar Company still owned the three receiving stations, and the manager who looked after those beets for us then was still living at the same place. I knew him well and called him. I think he knew I was in Michigan and Mm -hmm. said, do you think there's any chance that these growers whom he knew, I think, ever since he was a kid, would be willing to start growing beets again? (laughs) And he said, well, he said, give me a little time and I'll touch base with a number of them. get back to you and lo and behold he said i think i can get all of them to grow and we ended up selling the three receiving stations to michigan sugar company and i think there were people that quietly thought there was a conflict of interest or just unloading a pile of junk down there mm-hmm. and we uh, got forty thousand tons of beets for croswell Wow. Uh, not very economical. I think the freight rate, if I remember, was like $8 a ton. Horrific. Yeah. But 40,000 tons were the difference between really shutting the place down. And down and keeping it going. Yeah. So that solved the volume problem. Now we had to deal with the capacity problem. And again, for background, I don't know if you're familiar with what a diffusion battery is or Versus a diffuser. I don't. (laughs) Well, I'll explain it very briefly. A diffusion battery is manually operated instead of a tower, and it's a terrible, tough job. It's a dirty job. It's totally outdated. 
we had three plants that didn't have a diffuser. And I believe I'm correct when I say those were the only three plants in the United States that had not converted <laughs> to, wow. a, to a diffusion tower. So that's what we were faced with. And, and we knew that. My father, if I remember correctly, had already started talking to some folks he knew at BMA, which were the leading manufacturers in Germany of beet sugar equipment. They had never sold a tower diffuser in the United States. As a matter of fact, nobody had ever sold any diffuser other than a DDS. Every plant in the United States had a DDS, DDS. which was stands for Danish Sugar Company. They patented it and they licensed silver engineering in Denver to produce them, manufacture them. And the only plant that had a diffuser in Michigan, and I can't tell you the reason, uh, I should know it, but I, I don't know, was Carlton, which seems mm. like an odd yeah, it does. selection mm-hmm. that they would put a diffuser into that plant. But they had a 1,600-ton DDS diffuser at Carlton, which was really at that time in 63 too small for Carlton. Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> my father was negotiating with BMA to uh, ask them if they would consider installing a tower diffuser in Carroll on condition that they give us some payment terms that we could afford, like three years or whatever it was, I don't remember. And mm-hmm. they said, sure, they'd be happy to do that, provided that we give them permission that they can invite people from around <laughs> the country to uh, take a look at what a tower diffuser is. And So Caro got a 2,400-ton tower diffuser in 1964. Okay. Carlton diffuser was moved to Croswell. Uh, so Croswell went from 600-ton capacity to potentially 1,600-ton. Wow capacity and uh, Carlton again through my father's contact obtained a RT diffuser which is made in Belgium and they did the same thing they had never sold a diffuser in the United States either and RT is probably the Cadillac of the industry it's more expensive than the BMA and I believe they only sold three other ones, two or three other ones after ours. But anyway, they installed a diffuser at Carlton, so we went from undiffuser to three in one year. Oh my goodness! Right, <laughs> and that didn't mean that Croswell uh, was able to slice sixteen hundred tons. But I, I remember they sliced a thousand tons a day, like on the first week of campaign. <laughs> I think we raised <laughs> a flag somewhere. <laughs> But uh, uh, so uh, that was undoubtedly the biggest challenge that we faced. And from there, I could give you a litany of things we had no. Uh, the pulp presses were not what you're familiar with. They were small, individual, uh, 250-ton capacity, vertical things. I think we had 10 hanging there at each plant. Goodness. They were out of date. They were totally inefficient, if I can I still remember uh, good moisture content was like 82%. 84, 85 was not out of the norm. To- totally unacceptable by today's standards. You guys are, <laughs> what, 72%? Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. So yeah. you can imagine what our fuel yeah. bill looked like. Uh, so yeah. we were faced with uh, having to replace. Pulp presses, we didn't have one automatic or continuous centrifugal in any of the plants, and the manpower was just unbelievable. So yeah. those were some of the, 
challenges for starters. <laughs> so it sounds like you guys dove right in, and within a year or two, yeah. you, you made some pretty major investments. Yeah, well, in you really had no choice. Okay. I mean, it was either that or it wasn't going to work. Yeah. So you walk in and you see your management team and, you know, the folks that you're working with. Is mm-hmm. Was that a challenge too? I mean, were there people in place that mm-hmm. you felt good about or did you have to make some pretty significant changes from a, a leadership and yeah. top management standpoint? I wouldn't say we had we had to make changes. I think we were very shorthanded in uh qualified, experienced operating people, for sure, because they didn't need any. I see. But we didn't have any. And our agriculture department was mainly, the vice president of agriculture's main function was migrant labor. Really? Right. He went to Texas to recruit labor and look after all of that, and agriculture was kind of a secondary thing, and we were... Quite fortunate. Uh, I knew a few people that I became friends with, uh, Dave Sunderland, whom I think you yeah, knew. Yeah, I did. He and I were pretty good friends, and he was in Fremont, Ohio. And I went down there one day and said, would he ever consider? You know, it's pretty tough to leave a company like Great Western Sugar Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was eager to big improvement for him mm-hmm. to be in charge of that. And, yeah. You know, Dave was a unique guy. I mean, he just lived and breathed sugar beets he sure did yeah so those are some of the the things that helped and herb abel was someone that you knew was herb there when you got there herb was not there okay and uh, he was in canada and their plant closed in chatham and it's kind of a unique thing you know herb came from germany and uh, my dad had put an ad in the german sugar journal that people read in europe because sugar industry is pretty large sure. in Europe, and Herb saw the ad in a <laughs> German sugar magazine. While he was in Canada? While he was in Canada. <laughs> right, so he contacted us, and yeah. uh, you know, Herb came as a chief chemist and yep. progressed into operations, so we were very fortunate to get some uh, experienced people to join us. Mm-hmm. And when you got there, Mr. Roach was there, or did you recruit him as well? Who, uh, Dave Sr. Dave Sr. He was there. Okay. He was there. He was uh, actually, you remember by mentioning Lambert telling my father about Michigan sugar. Dave came from Lambert. That's oh. where he started in the okay. sugar business. Okay. And, and he came to Michigan, but nice. he had been there quite a while. Okay. So when you look at your talent as your the trusted people that you have on your team, are there certain things you looked for, or was it expertise in a certain area, or were you looking at for other things in, as you put your team together as well? I was uh, interested in getting to know people because, you know, when you come in cold like I did, I mm-hmm. just knew the people in the office, but yeah. I really didn't have any way of knowing the type of people we had out in the field and in the plant. And yeah. I enjoyed going out to the plants. First of all, I wanted to learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I wanted to see it for myself. You know, they can, people can explain things to you all day long, but if you can see it. Then you believe and, it. And huh? even <laughs> talk to some of the people that are there. It's a lot easier to 
understand, so I had a got a better feel of what type of people we had and mm-hmm. what we needed and where we could improve and so forth and so on. That was pretty much okay. the way I went about it. All right. I didn't know you the first 20 years of your career there. I joined in 83, it sounds like, and you joined in 63. And when I got there, there was talks of a marriage with Savannah Foods and Industries. Can you maybe give us some insight in, into what thoughts went through your head during that time when you, I don't know if you went, you wanted a marriage or if somebody approached you or how, how did that all work? Well, like most of these things, I think is a coincidence how it got started. I I was at a sugar association meeting in New York. Mark, familiar with them, there's hundreds of people, those things. And Bill Sprague, whom I think I had met, met him before, but I really didn't know him well and he didn't know me well. He came up to me, we were just making small talk, and he said, say, I'd like to give you a call sometime. I've got a couple ideas I want to talk to you about would you be available as sure i didn't know what he was <laughs> referring really? to okay and so he called me i don't know a couple of weeks later or whatever and he said say uh would you ever consider whether you'd be interested or if it would make any sense to have a cane refiner join with a beet sugar processor and if so i like to I'll get to know it a little better and chat about it. And I said, really hadn't thought about it, Bill, but uh, yeah, what the heck? I'm, I'll mm-hmm. have an open mind. Mm-hmm. And he said, great. He said, why don't you come down and visit us and see who we are and what we do and what have you? And he said, we'll send our plane up and pick you up. <laughs> and I, said, well, I didn't know they had an airplane. So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Savannah. And uh, yeah. so they came up and they picked me up and uh, I spent about three, four days, I think, down there and they showed me around and we went out to U.S. Sugar, which was one of their big suppliers of raw sugar in those days. Mm-hmm. Got to know those people and Bill and I had good conversation and he said, you know, the cane refining business is very low profit business, big volume, low profit. And he said, you guys are big profit, low volume. (laughs) I said, well, I don't know about that. But anyway, if you compared the two, the profit margins were tenfold in the beet industry. And the thing that intrigued me about what could they add to our operation was that their financial resources were far greater, obviously, than ours and I've always been averse to taking out bank loans for building sugar silos. Yeah. That was just not something that I ever wanted to yeah. do because nature of our business being as unpredictable and as volatile mm-hmm. as it is, that's the quickest way you can get into trouble. trouble. And so I uh, told Bill that we had lots of use for lots of capital. <laughs> <laughs> For a lot of good good items. And if they were willing to consider investing in the beet business, uh, I think I'd be interested in going further. And he said, absolutely. He said, makes perfect sense, you know. And that's basically how it got started. Interesting. And then he asked me if I was going to retire, and I said I hadn't planned on it. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready. And he said, well, good, because he said, I don't know if we want to do this if you're going to leave us. He said, you know the beat business. We don't know anything about the beat okay. business, and we don't really want to learn okay. it. So anyway, he said if that he wanted me to stay. I mean, I didn't sign a contract or anything, yeah. and I said, that's yeah. great. And they were great. I mean, yeah. Did you talk? 
talked to him at that time about the autonomy of Michigan Sugar Company? Because I, I know at that time there was in the office, there was talk of functions moving to Savannah and there was some question amongst some of the, the leaders there. Was there kind of a gentleman's agreement that you were just going to run things up here and he was going to do things down there? Or did it just naturally happen that he knew you needed to run Michigan? No, I, I think it was a given at, at the okay. time. I realized it changed. A lot of things changed down the road that mm-hmm. were not were not even considered at the at the yeah. time. It was just a given. Yeah. That he said, "You know what you're doing, mm-hmm. and just keep making profits." And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll send yeah. a plane up every time. <laughs> bring it up. <laughs> and so it was really a great arrangement, and the first it number really years was was, uh, mm-hmm. was terrific, and mm-hmm. you know it enabled us. The first thing we did was build a silo, and I told Bill that before we ever. I said the first thing we need is about five million dollars for silo uh, and safety. Huh. You know, going back to the old days for a minute to digress, if you can picture, we sold all our sugar and caro as liquid sugar. That was in the days before high fructose syrup. Pepsi Cola was our basically took the whole production and we had no bulk storage no silo no silo nothing you had to bag the sugar had to ship it to saginaw public warehouse send them back (laughs) to carol cut the bags throw the bags away you talk about inefficiency wow it was just unbelievable wow so that was in brief how the savannah thing came about maybe to change gears a little bit and when I talk about maybe your leadership style and the culture at Michigan Sugar Company, there's always been a very family atmosphere there. It was there when you were there. It's there still today when Mark's there. Mm-hmm. Is there something you attribute that to, or did, did that just happen naturally, or how would you describe that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I think maybe it had a little bit to do. I was. Uh, I think my predecessor didn't show up very often at the at the plants uh, okay i don't believe he did and uh, i was i made it a point not just to make myself because i wanted to mm-hmm. go to at least one plant every week and usually more than that i'd mm-hmm. show up on saturdays and i just like to get to talk to people and meet people and have them get to know me and if, mm-hmm. if they had any complaints or anything tell yeah. me about it yeah and so I made it a point to be seen and sort of get, get known mm-hmm. by the folks, not only the plants. I want to know the ag managers, and I want to know the fieldmen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I even got to the point where I got to know quite a few of the employees. Our warehouse supervisor in Seawing, Bill Widener was his name. Mm-hmm. He just was waiting to see me, and, and, I, <laughs> and I knew every time I came this was going to cost us some money. <laughs> Bill was just an absolutely dedicated uh-huh. guy, and he would corner me, and he said, Ernest, he said, I've got the oldest lift truck in the company. And, <laughs> and, and can't you get me a new one, and can't you do yeah. this? It was really, it was kind of refreshing that yeah. somebody. And I think that leads to where people know they could talk to. Yeah. That it wasn't sitting up in yeah. the office That's with the door closed. closed. Yeah. And yeah. I think that may have had something to do with it. Back in that day, there was a contract with the growers. 
Can you talk about the relationship with growers and the, the importance of that beet supply and mm-hmm. making the company profitable yet making the grower profitable at the same time? Yeah, I can. Uh, one of the things I probably should have mentioned earlier, my dad always right off the bat impressed on me. He said, you know, you can have the most beautiful plants and they can be all tiled floored and stainless steel railings, but if you don't have sugar beets... <laughs> To put through them, it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So he said, you've got to be on good relations with the growers. And I uh, was very conscious of that. Yeah. And while we didn't always agree on everything, it never got nasty or anything mm-hmm. like that. I think we had good relations with them. And I think they uh, realized that we were in the sugar business to stay. And I think it gave them confidence in mm-hmm. investing in new equipment and bigger equipment and uh, to stay in the the beet business. And uh, I think we got along pretty well. I think there was a mutual respect there. Yeah. 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 Around the 1993 timeframe, you you decide, you know, maybe you want to retire. And Dave Roach becomes president. Mm -hmm. After a short period, he gets requested to go to Savannah, I believe. And when Dave became president, he brought Mark aboard. Mm -hmm. And then Mark becomes president shortly thereafter. And I look back at when Mark came aboard and between the time he came aboard and through the time we became a co-op, he had some things, he had some challenges to face himself. Can you describe to me what what that interaction was between you and Mark and when you felt you had to give advice and when you needed to step away and let him handle things on his own? Well, let me say this. I really had nothing to do with Mark coming to Michigan. I, I I told Dave, I mean, he he said I needed somebody to replace me mm-hmm. as the assistant to the president. And he said, if you know of anybody, let me know. I said, well, I have a son in New York who's in the sugar business. Who I have no idea if he's interested in coming back, but I think you might give Mark a call. He knew Mark mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. And then they worked it out, and Mark decided to come back to Saginaw. So that. So I had nothing to, okay. to do with it, and I think That's Mark waited till I was gone anyway. Before he, ever <laughs> before come, he wanted come to come? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, and as far as uh, what advice I, I gave Mark, uh, he knew the marketing and that part and mm-hmm. futures and options way better than me. Yeah. So didn't need any advice <laughs> from me. I just... Uh, Told them what we've covered, that grower relations were super important. Mm-hmm. I uh, told them that unpredictability of our crops, and you can't make any <laughs> any plans. And mm-hmm. I uh, also told them that there was uh, endless need for capital, that it never ends. Yeah, still true and, today, isn't it? Right, yeah. so true, right, mm-hmm. right. And uh, I think the other thing that I obviously said, I said, if I can ever be of any help or anything, why... Let me know, and uh, I think the biggest mistake Mark made is I said, sort of in passing, if you want to send me the operating reports <laughs> weekly, I'll be glad to look at it. And I think he probably regrets that more than anything because he's gotten lots of emails, <laughs> free advice. <laughs> when I look at uh-huh. him, which I enjoy doing, mm-hmm. but, uh, that was really about it. He was... Okay. Uh, familiar with the sugar business and marketing and had these challenges as you say but ultimately uh, co-op was the only way to go Mm -hmm. and that's true of everybody in the business it is 
It is. Right. And it's worked out well. So when you look at where we are today compared to where you were in 1963, do you have words for it? No, just what boggles the mind, you know. I I think of my dad sometimes. He was the eternal optimist. Not not even he would have ever expected that we'd make 10 or 12 million bags of sugar. I remember my days when I came, I think we made a million and a half bags. And uh, I said, God, if if I can get this to 2 million... (laughs) bags uh, that would really be great and now you folks are up to five times that or six times Mm -hmm. that's really amazing it is yeah Yeah. well Ernest, i want to thank you it's been a real pleasure talking with you today i appreciate you taking the time with us there's a lot of people in our industry who have great respect for you and i appreciate you telling us your story thank you very much it's uh, kind of enjoyable to recall some of the (laughs) things that you went through and how it Mm -hmm. turned out so thank you very much all right thank you This has been Grounded. If you'd like to hear an episode on a specific topic, please email your ideas to grounded at michigansugar.com. Thanks for listening and check back soon for another edition of Grounded.